0: Okay, we're just gonna show it to you, so watch this. Watch the expression on this baby's face. His name is Leo, he's four months, and this smile. And here's why it means so much to his mom and dad. Before that moment, Leo, who has a rare disorder affecting his vision, had never had a good, clear look at the world. Most of what he's been able to see up until getting the glasses was extremely fuzzy or completely out of focus. Yup, everything, even up close things, like his dad's beard. He'd look at him or or get close to his face and instantly put his hands towards
1: his cheeks, maybe to identify if it's dad or if it's mom.
0: So the glasses were there to fix that. And the video, it shows the moment he first puts them on and first looks straight into his mother's face. And there's that hesitation, and then there it is obviously leo likes what he sees that smile was something that was so different yeah it was just it was just remarkable yes it was remarkable so here's one last look at this first look john donvan abc news washington i have to
1: tell you the hardest part of preparing this message was deciding which video to show you of children seeing for the first time with eyeglasses there are dozens of those um on youtube and every one of them gives you goosebumps because you can see on those kids' faces how amazed they are to see with clarity what had always before been blurry. There's this uninhibited joy in the kids and in their parents when suddenly everything becomes clear and vivid. Well, today we're going to study a passage of Scripture that I hope will have the same effect on us. That a first pair of eyeglasses has on kids with vision problems, because we too have a vision problem. Only our blindness is in the spiritual realm. We're as unaware of it as a child is who has never seen clearly. But the fact is that in and of ourselves, we are incapable of seeing clearly how to get to heaven. Ask any random person who believes in the possibility of life after death what it takes to live forever in heaven, and you are likely to get a fuzzy answer. That person may well venture a guess, and chances are their guess will be similar to most other people's guesses. But this passage is going to give us eyes to see that most people guess wrong. And if there's any question to which you don't want to have the wrong answer, It's this one, what must we do to live forever? What do we have to do to make sure that we end up in heaven? I can tell you with confidence that if you will let this passage correct your vision, you will walk out of church today with perfect clarity about life after death. If you already have eternal life, you will see why. And if you don't have it, you will see exactly how to get it. The passage is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you have a Bible, that's what you need to open it up to. Ephesians chapter 2, if you have a, the, the White Pine app, you can use that, and the passage is right there on the Bible tab. Or if you'd like to, you can just uh, read the text on the screen. It's all going to be up here today. But what you need to understand about this passage is that in it, the Apostle Paul is writing to those who already have eternal life but not all of them are clear about how they got it. And in order to test and if necessary correct their vision, he reminds them first of their spiritual condition before they were Christians. That's in verses one through three. And then he tells them what God did to change their destiny. That's verses four through seven. And then he wraps it all up by telling them how they should think differently about salvation than those who are simply guessing. That is in verses 8 through 10. Now, do you remember how encouraging Paul was in the passage that we looked at last week? I mean, he spent the entire first chapter pumping us up by telling us what is true about us because we are in Christ. He told us that we are perfectly pure in God's eyes, that we're deeply loved by the God who adopted us, and that we've been set free from both the penalty and the power of sin. He said that that we are the ones who know where history is headed, and that we have an eternal inheritance being kept for us in heaven, and we are utterly secure in our salvation. But as awesome as all those blessings are, there's the danger that we might drift into the delusion that God gave us these gifts, at least partly because of some redeeming quality in us. There must be something God saw in us that made us more deserving of eternal life than other people. We're like Captain Von Trapp and Sister Maria in The Sound of Music. Remember that scene where they're they're finally together at the gazebo, and they, they confess their love for one another, and after a romantic kiss, they break into a duet in which they agree that the reason why they are experiencing such bliss is because somewhere in their youth or childhood, say it with me, they must have done something good. You guys have seen it, right? You don't want to sing? i got a microphone on. Come on. Help me out here. But it's so easy for us to think that we must have done something good to merit salvation. But here's Paul's response to that mindset. Chapter 2 verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins How's that for vision correction? If we are in Christ and therefore on our way to heaven, it's definitely not because of our goodness. I mean, notice how Paul describes our pre-Christian lifestyle. He uses two different words in verse 1 to paint a very unflattering portrait of us. First, the word transgressions. Did you see that? To transgress means to drift off course. It means to wander off of the path. God's commandments paved the way for us. They told us exactly what we must do and what we must not do if we want to earn God's blessing. But Paul says we've all deviated from that path. Remember when the rich young ruler asked Jesus, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And do you remember what Jesus said in reply? He said, there's only one who is good. And when the man thought that maybe he was the one, Jesus started listing God's commandments. You shall not murder. And remember, he said in the Sermon on the Mount that anger is as bad as murder. You shall not commit adultery, either physically or in your fantasies. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not lie. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. The astonishing thing is that that man thought that he had checked all the boxes. But I hope you can admit that you've drifted off course. You look at that list and you say, no, I don't have a perfect record there. The other word that Paul uses is the word sins. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Sin is an archery term. It means to miss the bullseye. And what's the bullseye? Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How many of us shoot that straight? None of us does. To use the word that Paul uses in verse 2, we are all disobedient. Verse 3 says, all of us also lived among them at one time. Among whom? Among the disobedient. We've all sinned. We've all transgressed God's law. Why? Why? Well, it's because we've been irresistibly influenced by three powerful forces that are all opposed to God. First, Paul mentions the world in verse 2. He says, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. In this world, you can either swim with the current or you can swim against it. And if you take the path of least resistance, you are going to drift away from God. Because the current is engineered by the devil. 1 John 5 says that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And Paul says in verse 2 that we followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That is, the one who controls invisible demonic forces. And that ruler is the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. I am struck by that statement. I mean, I know that now I have the Holy Spirit in me. He's leading me. He's empowering me. But Paul says, before you were a Christian, you had a different spirit doing that. The devil himself was leading you and energizing you to disobey God. So, I mean, you got a problem here because first he rigged the system, and then he came to actually change the way that we behave, to to influence the way that we behave. And then in verse 3, Paul adds to the list of evil influencers, our flesh, that part of us that even now, to this day, is anti-God. I mean, even as Christians, we fight an inner battle between the conflicting desires of the flesh and the spirit. But before we were Christians, there was no real battle. The flesh always won because it was basically unopposed. We didn't have the spirit of God in us. And so it was natural for us, again, to use Paul's words, to gratify the cravings of our flesh and to follow its desires and thoughts. What does it look like to to gratify the desires and thoughts of the flesh? Well, in Galatians 5, Paul lists 15 different works of the flesh. Sexual immorality. That's any sexual behavior outside the Bonds of a marriage between a man and a woman. Everything that doesn't fit that is sexual immorality. Impurity and debauchery, that is doing whatever feels good. Idolatry, treating as your God that which is not God. And witchcraft, which in the original language is the casting of spells and the use of drugs. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy drunkenness, orgies, and the like. These are the kinds of things that you and I did when the devil, the world, and our flesh ganged up on us. You might say, like the rich young ruler said to Jesus, well, I've never done any of those things. Well, bad news. Even if we can somehow win at whack-a-mole and keep all those impulses under control, our flesh develops an ugly attitude that makes us as guilty as everyone else. Pride. In Philippians 3, Paul said, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law of faultness. So we don't relate to a lot of that stuff, but if you lived at his time as a Jew, you would say, man, that's quite a resume. And Paul thought that he deserved eternal life because he had been so much more righteous and religious than others. But his pride was just another flavor of sin. All of us chose to transgress, to sin, to disobey. And because of that, Paul says in verse 1, we were dead. Not dead physically, but dead Spiritually, John MacArthur says that people apart from God are spiritual zombies, the walking dead who do not know they are dead. Death is the condition of those who are cut off from the source of life, God. And because our sins offended His holiness, we were cut off from Him. We were spiritually dead. And according to verse 3, we were destined for God's wrath. What a strong word that is. It doesn't just mean punishment. It means punishment fueled by anger. It can be translated fury. God is so holy that our sins infuriate Him. We deserve the wrath of God that is coming on the disobedient. That's our condition outside of Christ. But That's the word in verse 4 where Paul pivots from our predicament to God's intervention. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Whew. As soon as Paul stops talking about us and starts talking about God, his tone changes completely. He mentions three things that God has done for us. First, He has raised us from the dead. We think that's a future blessing. You know, after I die, God will raise me from the dead. No, no. No, no, you were dead. But God made you alive with Christ even when you were dead in transgressions. It's the most dramatic description of salvation in Scripture, that salvation is a resurrection. We who had no spiritual pulse have been resuscitated by God. We are all Lazarus. We were in a putrid tomb until Jesus commanded us to come out. There's a scene in John 12 uh, where Jesus was the guest of honor at a meal, which was enjoyed by, among others, Lazarus after he died. You can understand why a crowd gathered. People wanted to see Jesus, yes, but they also wanted to see Lazarus. What does a guy look like who used to be dead? And John didn't record anything Lazarus said at that meal, but imagine if his friends began to ask him what it was like to be raised from the dead. And he responded by saying something like this, well, let me tell you guys, it wasn't easy, but somehow I found the strength to make it back. There I was, laying flat on my back, all wrapped up, and suddenly I just decided, hey, I'm not going to let this happen to me. I made up my mind to come back to life. And little by little, I began to move. I just started by wiggling my toe. And then pivoting my ankle, and I started to fight, fight to break free from the burial cloth, and, 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 and then I rolled over on my side, and I lifted my body up, and I got up on my feet, and with all the strength I could muster, I pushed that stone away from the tomb's entrance, and I just started walking until I could feel the warmth of the sun on my face through the cloth, and I just stood there until my friends came and took the cloth off my face. Pretty impressive, huh? What would you have said if Lazarus told you how he brought himself back from the dead? Uh, You would say, I believe you're giving credit to the wrong person. I'm sure that as Lazarus sat there at that meal, his heart was filled, not with pride, but with gratitude and love toward Jesus who had given him a gift that he knew he didn't deserve. Can you see that what happened to Lazarus physically is exactly what has happened to you spiritually? God raised you from the dead. And secondly, Paul says God saved us. See it there in the last part of verse 5? It's by grace you have been saved. Saved from what? Saved from God's wrath. We've been rescued by God from His own fury. How is that possible? It's possible because God redirected His fury. We deserved it. There we were, the target of God's anger for all the sins that we had committed, and He redirected it from all of us who had sinned to the one person who never sinned. That's what happened on the cross. God's fury against our sins was poured out on the only sinless one, His own Son. And in verse 6, Paul says that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Did you know that there's a sense in which right now you're already in heaven, you're seated next to Jesus on His throne. You think, well, I didn't know the throne of Jesus was a two-person throne, a two-seater, a love seat. Yes, it is, and you're the one sitting next to Him. You already have reservations right now for the seat of honor in heaven. This is what God has done for us who could do nothing for ourselves, dead as we were. The question is, why? If not because of our goodness, what motivated him to do it? Well, Paul uses three different words to reveal God's motives for saving us and blessing us so richly. First it was because of His mercy, see it in verse 4? God who is rich in mercy. Mercy is an emotional word. It means to feel deeply someone else's plight or pain and then to do something about it. God saved us because our hopelessness and our helplessness broke His heart. Just as Jesus wept when He learned that Lazarus had died, God weeps for those who are spiritually dead. He sees the misery that we've already experienced and have yet to experience because of our sin, and he weeps for us. And then with tears in his eyes, he reaches out to save us. That's mercy. Again, I'm blown away that God could feel such intense anger and such tender compassion at the same time. He was furious about our sins, but brokenhearted because of our suffering. And at the cross, both the anger of God and the mercy of God were expressed simultaneously. second word that Paul uses to describe God's motive for saving us is love, also in verse 4, because of His great love for us. But unlike mercy, love is not really an emotional word. It's more of a volitional word. That is, it must act. Agape love. That's the word that he's using there. Agape love, that is a self-sacrificing commitment to the welfare of another person. So when Paul refers to God's great love, he is saying that God saved us because He was committed to doing what was best for us, no matter what it cost Him. Literally, he says, because of His great love with which He loved us, past tense. He's talking about an event there a way in which He expressed His love to us, and that event was the cross. That's where God paid the highest price for our welfare. And you can't help but notice the word grace. I mean, it's all through the passage. It's by grace you have been saved, verse 5. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace, verse 7. Grace means undeserved kindness, and no word describes God's motivation for saving us from death and wrath better than the word grace. He did it because He had a heart of mercy and love that could not withhold kindness toward us, undeserving of it as we were. If you want to see salvation clearly, you have to grasp that it's only because of God's grace. One of the best illustrations of grace that I've ever heard is the story of the missionaries who in the mid-1950s attempted to bring the gospel message to a native tribe in Ecuador. Despite the natives' reputation for killing all intruders, five men, including Jim Elliot and Nate Saint, committed their lives to bringing this tribe. The message of salvation. If you've heard the story before, you know that all five men were murdered by the natives. But the most amazing part of the story is what happened after those men died. Two women, one the wife of Jim Elliot, the other the sister of Nate Saint, went into the tribe and shared the gospel with the natives and they led to Christ, the men who had murdered their husband and brother. That's grace. It's undeserved kindness. That's what God did for us. He saved us despite the fact that we were the ones who were responsible for Christ's death. can't tell you how many times I have heard the story of those missionaries, despite the fact that this happened some 70 years ago. The story of the grace that Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint extended to those natives is so powerful that it just keeps getting repeated over and over again. Well, in verse 7, that's essentially what Paul says is going to happen with our story throughout all eternity. God resurrected us and saved us and exalted us in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Throughout all eternity... Our presence in heaven is going to remind everyone there how gracious God really is. The angels are going to be looking at us and shaking their heads and saying, how did they get in here? What amazing grace! Now, I know that we've really been just dissecting this passage this morning. Maybe some of you have checked out along the way, and if you have, that's okay, but check back in right now because this is where Paul puts eyeglasses on our face and shows us exactly what we must do to receive eternal life. This is going to give some of you 2020 hindsight because you've already done it, but it may give, give others of you clarity that you've never had before about what you must do to live forever. Paul says in verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Notice that he's talking in the past tense, because he's writing to those who are already Christians. And his message to them is, never forget why you have salvation and eternal life. It is not because of anything you have done, it is only because of what God has done for you. But if Paul were writing to those who were not yet Christians, he would say it this way. If you want to be saved, if you want to go to heaven, if you want eternal life, don't rely on your goodness. Just accept God's grace. For it is by grace. What's grace? It's God's undeserved kindness. It is by God's undeserved kindness that you have been saved. Saved from what? Saved from death, saved from God's wrath. It is by God's undeserved kindness that you have been saved from death and wrath. How? Through faith. Faith simply means belief or trust. We are saved from death and from God's wrath by believing in Jesus Christ, by trusting the fact that when He died on a cross, He died for our sins. By believing that He rose from the dead. It is by God's undeserved kindness that you have been saved from death and from God's wrath through believing in Jesus Christ. And look at verse 8 again. This is critical. And this, this what? This salvation by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. So that no one can boast. See, to trust in Jesus Christ requires relinquishing trust in yourself. This is not a both and thing. It's an either or thing. You're either trusting in yourself or you're trusting in Christ. You're either putting your hope of being accepted by God in your behavior or you're putting your hope of being accepted by God in what Christ has done for you. Let me just illustrate this for you. Right now, you're all sitting on a chair, right? Anybody, is anybody here not actually sitting on the chair? You're actually just like, I don't know, maybe it's kind of a 50-50 thing where you're sitting on the chair, but you're also flexing your leg muscles because you're just not quite sure the chair is going to hold you up. You don't want to fall to the ground. And so, you know, you're using your legs to help keep you up. Or maybe you're kind of hovering over the chair. You're not actually even touching it because you say, "I want Jesus to be there as my safety net," or "I want." I'm sorry. I want the chair to be there as my safety net, but I'm you know I'm not sure, so I'm gonna I'm gonna use my own strength, and I have a backup plan. No, everybody here, I think you're just sitting in the chair, right? So comfortable that maybe some of you have nodded off. I mean, you're just so. You're just resting in that chair, putting all of your weight on it. You're not trusting in your muscles at all. You're trusting completely in the chair. This is what we have to do to become a Christian. We have to stop trusting in the muscles of our own good behavior, our own good deeds, our own righteousness. And we have to trust instead completely, 100%, all of our weight, on what Christ did for us on the cross. I was having a conversation once with a neighbor of mine that kind of drifted into spiritual things. Um, He told me that he attended church regularly, and so I, I said, well, let me get your opinion on something. And I kind of just drew through these three imaginary circles on my hand. And I kind of just drew a little F in the circle on the left, F plus W in the middle, W on the right. And I said, these circles represent three different opinions about how to get to heaven. Some people believe that all you have to do is put your faith, that's what the F stands for, all you have to do is put your faith in Jesus Christ. Some people think that the way you get into heaven is by the way that you live. It's the good works that you do. That's what the W is for, it's for works. And there are some people who say, well, really it's a combination of both. You do have to put your faith in Christ, but you also have to live a life of good works. It's faith plus works. And I I said, which do you think is the right answer? And he, as most people do when I've used this illustration, pointed to the middle circle. And I said, well, that's what most people think. But can I tell you what the Bible says? He said yes, and I quoted for him Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith and this not from yourselves it is the gift of god not by works so that no one can boast and i pointed to that little to that circle on the left with the f in it and i said this is how you get into heaven and he said i knew that (laughs) and maybe he did maybe he had put all of his trust in jesus but over time it just kind of got blurry for him and he started to drift into this mindset that his own good behavior was part of the equation. Or maybe he just didn't want to admit that he was wrong. It didn't matter to me. All that mattered was that he understood at that moment and hopefully forever after that moment that he was saved by God's grace through faith alone. I don't care which circle you would have pointed to before you came to this service. I only care That when you walk out, you're only thinking about the circle with the F in it. That you see clearly that eternal life is a free gift that is offered by God's grace, regardless of your unworthiness. And, and, And I care that you are trusting in Jesus to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. May you never again be fuzzy about this. Salvation is all ours through faith, not faith plus works, faith alone. Now, the objection that I hear so often is that this implies that how we live doesn't matter. Christians can live any way they please as long as they have faith in Jesus Christ. That sounds logical, but it misses one very important truth, and that is the truth that when we believe in Christ, that when we accept God's grace, that when we abandon all of our own efforts to earn our salvation, that at that moment that we're trusting only in Jesus, He puts His own Holy Spirit inside of us, the same Spirit that energized His own life, and that Spirit enables us to live the way that God wants us to live. Paul talked about it back in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And when that transfer happens, when the Spirit of God comes to live inside of us, for the first time in our lives, we have both the desire and the ability to do the good that God wants us to do. Before we were Christians, we were dead in transgressions and sins. We couldn't please God. But His plan was to give us salvation as a free gift, and part of that gift is the Holy Spirit who recreates, us into the people that God wants us to be. Look at how Paul describes the process in verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That completes the picture. In Christ, we become what we could never have become through our own efforts. We become God's handiwork. One translation says, we are God's work of art. Even as Christians, we are who we are by God's grace. Isn't that a great truth? So you see, this is a really humbling passage, but also a liberating one. It hurts our pride, but when pride is stripped away, we can just revel in God's grace. We can rest in what He has done for us. We can rejoice that He is the one who is transforming our lives. So let me just give you three quick practical takeaways. What do I want you to see? Three things. First, God gets all the credit for our salvation and for our good works. We must be careful to never take credit for either. Once when Billy Graham spoke at an event, he, he was introduced by someone who compared his ministry to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And Billy Graham's first words when he came to the microphone were, God will share His glory with no man. May we be just as zealous for God's glory and never again deceive ourselves into thinking that we deserve any of the credit for whatever good we do. It's all God. Second, I want you to see that no one is beyond hope. We have this tendency to think, that some people are more likely to become Christians than other people are. We just look at their lives and we go, this person is a little closer to salvation than that person is over there. And sadly, that person over there is often the people that we love the most, is someone we love the most. That person's so far from God, they're never gonna get saved. Well, anybody that's on this line, of, from this line of salvation to here, they're all dead. They're all equally dead. And God raises from the dead whoever He wants to raise from the dead. And so we should never lose hope that the grace of God might save those that we love. It is always too soon to stop praying for those we love who need Jesus because no one is beyond hope. And third, I want you to see that eternal life is available today. If you are not yet a Christian, You can become one in the next minute. Your whole destiny can be changed. These three circles represent a choice that you have to make. Only one's going to get you into heaven. In whom are you going to put your trust? If you choose Jesus, faith in Him alone, God in His mercy, love, and grace will raise you from the dead rescue you from his wrath, and give you a seat of honor next to Jesus in heaven. I know you don't deserve it. None of us does. And yet, this is what God offers you right now. Let's bow in prayer. I want to just extend an invitation to you. If you've never before made that commitment to stop trying to just earn your way to heaven and, and to just believe that Jesus did it all for you, would you just put your trust in him right now? Just say to Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I want your spirit to come into my life to cleanse me of my past and to, to make me the person that God wants me to be. Just say to, to him, I believe in you, Jesus. I trust in you. Lord, those of us who have done that, May, I'm, if, if others here are like me, you know, there have been times when I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe there is some good in me. And I, I repent of that today. I know that any good in me is just what you've done in me. We do celebrate your grace today. We commit ourselves to never again stealing the credit from you. But through all eternity, may we be among those who worship you for your amazing grace.